Good morning again, everybody. Go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 12. Getting back into our Matthew series. Really excited about that. Title of my message for the morning is God's Kingdom versus Satan's Kingdom. It's got some good stuff to go over this morning from Matthew 12, 22 through 32. Just to give you a little bit of a recap, because we've paused our Matthew series since October. So at this point in the story, Jesus is like fully engaged in his ministry. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, he's casting out demons, he sent his 12 out to do all that same stuff. And he's starting to have these run-ins now with the Pharisees and the religious leaders who do not like Jesus at all. He threatens everything that they hold dear, their power, their prestige. So he's already had two of those sort of run-ins with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to be reading about the third one, which is kind of a climax of his run-ins and his conflicts with these Pharisees. And... Uh, sets the stage for the rest of the book of Matthew. So, what I'm going to have you do, rather than me standing up here and spending two minutes to read ten verses at you, we're going to put it on the screen, or you have your own Bibles, read it on your own, and then tell the person next to you one thing that stands out to you about it, okay? Or someone near you. On your mark, get set, go. All right. Let's go ahead and start to wrap up. I'm going to pray to launch us into talking about this text. Jesus, thank you for this part of scripture. Thank you for all of the truth here that is life-changing for us and is life to our souls. Help your word sink deep into our minds and our hearts this morning. Whatever part of this you want to use to form us, we say yes to that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I got two main points for you out of this, and it's going to take me a second to get to my first main point, mainly because I just want to break down a lot of this interesting stuff that's happening verse by verse. So for those of you that love points, don't worry, we're going to get to one. But (laughs) we're going to start off just kind of going through this interesting stuff. So to paraphrase verses 22 and 23... The crowds bring before Jesus a demonized man. And I do want to pause here and point out that demonized is better language than demon-possessed. Because demon-possessed implies total control and ownership. And that's the word that like the KJV, KGV used, KJV used, and a few other translations have used, but most have moved away from uh, demoniac, demonized, those are, have a demon, those are all better translations of the original Greek word there, and the reason they're better is that what was happening with these people who had demons was not total control and ownership, but it was oppression, and it was affliction from demonic spirits. So they bring before him a demonized man, and this demonic oppression that this man was experiencing had brought about blindness and muteness. And so then we read that Jesus cures this blindness and this muteness. And the implication here is that he not only healed him, but he also cast the demon out of him. As becomes very clear a few verses later. 
So his sight and his speech comes back and the crowds are stunned. And something I want to point out from this we could easily miss, but it's super practical, especially for those of you in here who love to do prayer ministry. Sometimes for healing to happen, something demonic has to be taken care of first. If you're praying praying for someone to be healed and you're hitting a block, hitting a block, hitting a block, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes what can be going on is there's a demonic spirit there and that you actually need to take care of the demonic spirit first and then the healing will just sort of happen by domino effect. The main way to be on the lookout for this is if you're praying for somebody and pain starts to move throughout their body. Like if they have shoulder pain, you pray, and all of a sudden it's in the other shoulder. That's weird. Pray for that one. All of a sudden it's in their lower back. I've seen this happen. One time there was this this, uh, woman I was praying for who was demonized, and the pain went from her neck to one shoulder to the other shoulder to her arm to her ring finger and stayed there super intense in her ring finger. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? You know, Christianity can be real and normal and rational until you start casting demons out. And, and so I'm, I, I, and so then I think the Holy Spirit just gives me the question to ask her, which is, do you have any unforgiveness going on in your heart right now? And she said, yeah, well, my ex-fiance, I got a lot of unforgiveness with him. And so a ring obviously was significant there. And so then she prayed to forgive him and boop, the pain went right out her ring finger. So, uh, I share that story because beyond, if you're praying for someone and pain starts moving throughout their body, that is usually a dead tell that you're dealing with a demonic spirit. And you want to focus on the demonic spirit before you try to go after the healing. Now, I will say, I want to give a caveat with this, that sometimes pain might not be moving, but you might just discern or suspect that someone's health issue is a product of demonic oppression. Please you lead lightly with that. And what I mean by that is don't tell the person, hey, God told me you have a demon and that's why you have this illness. <laughs> and as funny as that can sound, there have been a lot of people, trauma- and I think traumatized is the right word to use, traumatized by the suggestion that their chronic illness is a product of demonic oppression when in reality it, it turns out it wasn't. Sometimes it is. Sometimes a person's long-standing health issue goes back to a demon, but sometimes it doesn't. And so if we come in with certainty, this is a demon, we have the potential to traumatize that person if our discernment or our suspicions was incorrect. And I do want to remind us all that as much as we believe in growing in the prophetic, no, none of us are ever going to have perfect discernment until we're on the other side of eternity. And so my encouragement to you is if you do suspect this in somebody, and pain isn't moving around, there's no obvious physical signs, say, I think this could be something demonic. Would you be open to praying for that? If they say yes, go forward with it. If not, just move on. So getting into verse 23, I'll just read it again. Matthew, the author of the gospel, Matthew says this, All the crowds were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Now that phrase, son of David, is significant because this is the first time that messianic language is being used in a crowd setting about Jesus. So it's the first time 
that the crowds are starting to contemplate whether Jesus is not just a prophet and a miracle worker, but whether he's the Messiah or not. Which explains why the Pharisees get so alarmed here and level this accusation against them. The crowds are starting to believe that this man who threatens everything that we stand for and value, the crowds are starting to believe that he's the Messiah. And I want to give another little quick word on, on that point. In regards to the Pharisees and their, their fear here, what they were afraid of was losing their power, prestige, and accolades. They were the religious leaders and the religious professionals. They got all of the admiration from the people for how they practiced Judaism. They got all the accolades, and they were threatened because Jesus was taking that control, that prestige, that influence away from them. And as I think about our church, there are a lot of people in our church who are bearing lots of fruit for the kingdom of God right now. People who are doing great things. And unfortunately, what is just normal for humanity is that as we start to bear fruit in the kingdom and start to get the admiration and the prestige and the accolades of the people around us, that feeling of being admired, that feeling of being prestigious can become addicting to the person in kingdom ministry. And it is so hard not to just live off of that. <laughs> to, and I say this from experience, live off of that and desire more of that admiration, more of that respect, more of that wow factor from people. And really the only way that you can combat this, you can't, let me say this, you can't combat this just by trying hard not to want it. You know, anybody who has fallen in ministry, meaning that they've been They've had a degree of ministry success, but then they fell into some sort of sin or moral failure. Anybody who has fallen, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say anybody, the vast majority of people started out with good intentions. They started out with the right heart, but as that admiration and that prestige and that fame came, it became the thing that they loved more than God and more than their call. And I guarantee you it was a slow, gradual process. And so my point is just trying to avoid that and saying I'm not going to love that is probably not a good strategy. What I would encourage you to do is to actively do things from time to time that combat that desire for prestige. If you're a songwriter and you write a really great song, decide from time to time that really great song is not going to be shared by, to anybody. It's just going to be between you and Jesus. If you're a social media influencer and you get that great revelation from time to time, Decide you're not going to share it. It's just going to be between you and God. I can tell you all with certainty, because our beloved Micah Turnbow has told me, there are plenty of things he does not share with the world. It's just between him and Jesus. If you are, uh, and if, if, you're, if, there's, if you're a writer, you know, sometimes just let that thing you wrote just be between you and God. And sometimes decide you're not going to share what you write for a year. You're just going to pray about it and hold it and wait for God to release you to share it rather than sharing it right away. Hope, I'm, giving, I'm not giving any kind of prescriptions here. I'm just describing the kinds of things that we can do. But those kinds of things, doing those actions that deflect admiration and accolades from other people, 
Those are so good for our hearts and so good for our minds as we're bearing kingdom fruit. And that's how we stay out of the error of the Pharisees here. Now, the crowds, one more thing to say about this, they express this uncertainty here. They say, can this be the son of David? So they're not saying he is, but they're kind of like considering it and strongly implying it. And really, the reason that they're not certain here is most likely due to the fact that Jesus is not fulfilling the political expectations that people had of the Messiah. People at the time had the expectations that the Messiah would be raising up a militia to conquer Rome. Jesus was not doing that. Therefore, they're wondering, they're thinking it probably is the Messiah, but they're maybe not quite ready to say he definitely is. Okay, now into verse 24, we get the Pharisees' response to the crowd. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, that this fellow casts out the demons. Okay, so who is Beelzebul? Well, pretty simply put, Beelzebul is just another name for Satan. It's a synonym. It's like his nickname you can think of. And we're not exactly sure where this term came from because it first appears in the New Testament writings. It didn't appear in any writings before that that we have, at least. But one theory is that it actually comes from the Canaanite god Baal. And it's a play on words of, of Baal. So it's, it's a synonym for Satan. And, and Satan, or Beelzebul, is the authority over demons. He gets called here the ruler of the demons. And what this implies is something that is probably pretty obvious, but it's worth pointing out, that lower level demons that oppress people, both today and back then, are loyal to Satan and do his bidding. Probably not joyfully or probably more like begrudgingly, but there is this sense of authority structure in the demonic realm. Finally, something to point out from this is that the Pharisees are more or less accusing Jesus of being a sorcerer here. And being a sorcerer was a capital crime during the day. And what's interesting is that this is the first time he's accused by the Pharisees of being a sorcerer, yet that remains the primary accusation that those in Judaism who oppose the Christian movement for centuries to come level against Jesus. That's the main way that, that he's discredited in the Jewish community going forward, that he was just a sorcerer. He was just a, a miracle worker by demonic power. And... I guess this is the last, last thing to point out about this verse. The fact that they're saying it's not just demonic power that Jesus is using, but it's satanic power. That's what they're saying here. Not just demonic power, but satanic power. This is the Pharisees like escalating and intensifying their accusation toward Jesus. So moving into 25 and 26, Jesus offers his rebuttal against their accusation. And the first thing that he does is basically points out that him casting out demons by the power of the ruler of demons makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Uh, a, king, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. 
And that phrase was especially resonant to the first century listeners because they had seen how civil wars and empires completely tore the, those countries and nations and nation states apart. And so for them, it'd be like, oh, obviously, a kingdom divided itself cannot stand. Next, Jesus asks a rhetorical question that traps the Pharisees. And I'll read this one verbatim. Verse 27, Jesus says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out? And so this is a trap because the Pharisees really didn't have a good answer to this question. Their options were, one, to deny exorcism ministry outrightly, which would have been pretty foolish given the fact that they actually had exorcists in their midst. That's what we get from this verse. Secondly, they could have said, well, our exorcists have God's power, but Jesus has demonic power. But that would have been laughable to the crowds because the Jewish exorcism rituals that were done were really kind of spooky and complex and strange, and they rarely even worked. But Jesus with just a word, is authoritatively driving these demons out. So had they tried to give that argument, it would have been laughed at by the crowd. So Jesus really does trap them here. This is kind of one of, this, this accusation of he's casting out demons by the ruler of demons is kind of like today when a politician says something that is not logical to defame their opponent, if you really look at it closely, it has a bunch of holes, but it gets a crowd riled up. That's kind of what's happening in this scenario. So that leads to verse 28. We are close to my first point, by the way. Okay, we're very close. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So when I read that just now, that verse... Here's what all of your guys' faces looked like. But I can assure you that when that statement was uttered by Jesus 1,990 years ago, people's faces would have been bewildered and absolutely shocked to the core at that kind of a statement. So I want to help you understand why that statement was so shocking. Again, let me read it one more time. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Especially that last part, the kingdom of God has come to you. This would have been stunning to the first century readers. So let me break this down and let me give you the point ahead of time. The implication here is this, that God's kingdom is already here alongside Satan's kingdom. And God's kingdom is still coming to fully annihilate Satan's kingdom. Okay. And I could even make it a little more specific, that first part. God's kingdom is already here and has defeated Satan's kingdom. God's kingdom is still coming to fully annihilate Satan's kingdom. So, what's going on here? Well, like us today the people of ancient times had an innate sense that this world is not as it should be. When they looked around and saw people starving to death because of lack of food, like we see today, people dying because of lack of access to clean water, 
like we see today. Disease, when people saw war and the devastating effects that war had, has on life and, and broken families and slavery, which again, existed then, exists today still. Murder, people just had an innate sense this world is not how it should be. And you and I have that sense as well, right? And even our atheist friends and family, basically, it's a common experience of humanity that this world is not either as it should be or as it's supposed to be. And so combine that general sense for the ancient people with brutal oppression, governmental oppression. We can't relate here, but imagine if the Nazis had won World War II and today we were living under Nazi Germany right now, under their rule, okay? Combine that with just that general sense that this world is not right. And that was the place that the ancient Jews were in their hearts and in their minds. And so they're in this place, especially at, um, in like 700 BC when the, they're take, the, the uh, Jewish people are taken into exile. They're in this place of just, yeah, depression and subjugation and uh, wondering about the world. Then the prophets start to speak. And these prophets are undeniably speaking on behalf of God. Why? Because for the last few decades, all they were talking about, probably a few hundred years, all they were talking about was how God was going to punish Israel and Judah by taking them into exile because of their sin. And lo and behold, that did end up happening. But after that happened, the prophets started sharing a different message. And the message the prophets started sharing, you can read about it in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and all throughout, is that God is coming back for his people. He's not going to leave them in that oppressed state. And he's actually coming back for the whole world. He's not going to leave the world in this place of suffering and starvation and murder and slavery. He's going to address all of that. He's going to come and be king himself. He's going to do away with all the oppressors, do away with all the suffering and all the sin, and set this world right. Make this world as it should be. That's, and he's going to do all of that through this person that's called the Messiah. So that's what the prophet started saying, and that was the hope that the Jewish people were clinging to. Okay, So then when Jesus says this statement, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come to you, what he was effectively saying is that that future, future world where God is king himself and the world is as it should be is here right now. And a sort of cognitive dissonance would have immediately occurred to the people here. And by that I mean believing two conflicting things at the same time. On one hand, Jesus was fulfilling every expectation, aside from the political ones, as to what a Messiah should be. He had authority over demons in a way that had never been seen before, and in a way that showed that he actually had authority over Satan himself, which was only something the Messiah could have. He was healing people's bodies. He was preaching forgiveness. And so he seemed like the Messiah, but the people would have looked around and been like, Rome is still in charge. They're still suffering. 
There's still war. There's still evil. There's still sin. How can that future world be here now if all of this evil is still here now? That would have been the cognitive dissonance that this statement would have put the listeners into. So what was Jesus wanting them to understand by this sentence? It's this. Jesus wanted people to know that with every demon he cast out, with every person he healed, God's world was breaking into that world. It's kind of like if you've ever seen like a sci-fi movie where there's sort of this disruption of matter and energy in this certain place in a room, and it's like, you know, and there's like this other world kind of behind it that you're getting glimpses of. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I crazy? <laughs> Do I sound crazy? So, <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of what's happening here. Every time that Jesus would cast a demon out, it was like that world of, that world of the future that where God sets everything right was kind of like breaking into that present moment for, us, for, for, a, for a moment. And had that new world fully arrived? No, but it was clearly breaking into the present moment through Jesus. And so uh, one way that uh, one author who's one of the fathers of kingdom theology that I love, he puts it this way. Jesus's conviction shows itself clearly that the future kingdom of God had already begun in his activity. The future world where everything's set right had already started with Jesus. And this is what's happening when you and I do the kingdom. When you cast a demon out of someone, you are partnering with God breaking his good world into this broken world. When you heal somebody, when you forgive somebody, when you forgive someone who does not deserve it, who has not apologized to you, who really wronged you, you're actually opening up a portal of God's good future world into this world right now. This is the compelling part about Christianity. It's not our mantras and our doctrine and our dogma. It's allowing people to experience that good as it should be world, even now in the midst of our broken world. And we do that by doing the works of the kingdom, by doing the stuff that Jesus taught us to do. Healing, deliverance, forgiveness, loving enemies. You love somebody that uh, you have no business loving, or you, when you love somebody that hates you, you are opening up a portal of God's kingdom in that place, not just for you and that person to experience, but for everyone observing to experience. In case that whole future past thing is a little difficult to understand, let me remind you of a, of an, let me show you an illustration I've shared before that's helpful. Starting with what the Jews were expecting about the kingdom, we've got creation, then there's the garden where everything is good, boom, this present evil age comes into play this is another word for Satan's kingdom. And we've got suffering, injustice, sin, and evil as a result of the fall of man with Adam and Eve. But the Messiah would come, and when the Messiah came, that present evil age would be done, and God's kingdom and all of its goodness, love, joy, and justice would begin. This is what the Jews were expecting. What Jesus and the New Testament authors taught started off the same. Next. We got creation. 
the garden, everything's good. Sin, present evil age, everything's bad. Then we get Jesus. But here's where things change. Jesus does not do away with this present evil age immediately. You can go to the next slide. He does not do away with it immediately. He does usher in the kingdom of God in all of its goodness, love, joy, and justice, but that present evil age continues in all of its suffering, sin, injustice, and evil. And we have this like overlap of ages. Show them that next slide. Where we have this present evil age happening at the same time as the kingdom of God, the good world that God is creating. And that present evil age, Jesus taught, although it didn't get eliminated at his first coming, it would be eliminated. Satan's kingdom will be eliminated by his second coming. And so until then, we live in this time where there's goodness, sin, injustice, justice, suffering, joy, evil, and love until Jesus comes back again. Okay, let's do a short discussion with the person next to you again. Got three questions for you. First one, what parts of kingdom theology are you, what we've been talking about since I made my point is kingdom theology. What are you still confident in? Or what are you confident you understand? What's still not clear to you? Or how have you seen God's kingdom show up in your life? Choose one of those to answer with the person you came with or someone near you. Go. All right. I know that was quick. We only got about 10 minutes left, but I wanted to give you a chance just to take a mental breather and process some of this stuff. So let's finish this out because I'm sure that Many of you would like to hear what the unforgivable sin is, which was in this text. So before we get to that, though, let's jump back into the narrative. Verse 29, this is another statement Jesus made. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then indeed the house can be plundered. A big thing we need to take from this is that God's kingdom is on the offense against Satan's kingdom, not the other way around. So what Jesus is saying in this verse is that first off, Jesus' mission is actually an invasion of Satan's kingdom. That's kind of what the enter a strong man's house language implies, that the kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of Satan. Secondly, the uh, second thing Jesus is getting at here is that he has, he has dealt a decisive blow against Satan's kingdom. The power of Satan's kingdom has been defeated and his complete destruction is inevitable. That's what the tying up of the strong man means. That means he's defeated and he's eventually going to be completely done away with. And then the, the like plunder his property part of this means freeing people from demonic oppression. Every time that Jesus casts a demon out of someone, every time that you and I cast a demon out of someone, the invasion and victory of Jesus over Satan is evidenced. Quick plug, I'm doing a class on casting out demons. If you've done CSSM and you wanna learn more about this, sign up for it and we'll get more into the practicals out of how to do this. If you haven't, do CSSM and I'm gonna do it every year so you'll get, you'll get it next year. So we're on the offensive, and this is really important that we get because too often we get stuck in our Christian bubbles, and we kind of envision the world as like we're building this utopian 
community that is our church and, oh, but Satan's attacking us, you know? And we just gotta ward off his attacks for as long as we can until Jesus comes back. It's the exact opposite situation. We have been like parachuted behind enemy lines and we're committing guerrilla warfare against Satan's kingdom with everything that we do. That's more accurate of the picture here. And, and Jesus even specifies this a little later on in Matthew, uh, Matthew 16. He says this to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Gates means we are attacking Satan's fortress, not the other way around. His gates will not prevail against our offensive. So what this means for you and I is that for us, offense is our best defense against Satan. Offense is our best defense against the kingdom of darkness. We get this flipped, though, so often. Imagine that, that scenario I was painting before happens. You're parachuted behind enemy lines, but then you decide, you know what I think the best strategy here would be? To find a hole, get some like rocks around it, sit down in that hole and just ward off attacks. That'd be a pretty bad plan, right? You're behind enemy lines. You could be quickly overwhelmed by massive amounts of forces at any time. What you're better off doing is moving from place to place covertly, stealthily, on the offensive, winning battles as you go. And actually by being on the offense and winning battles as you go, you are presenting your best defense as well. That's actually the best way that you can uh, stay defended against the kingdom of darkness. And so I think for a lot of you, there needs to be a shift of mindset for all of us of we're not on the defensive here, we're on the offensive against the kingdom of darkness. As we live life, we are on the offense against the kingdom of darkness. If I could continue that metaphor just a little bit further, another scenario that I think some of us find ourselves in is that we get behind enemy lines, but then we forget that we're in a battle altogether and we find a village to move into. We buy a house, we get a job, and we're just kind of like existing in enemy society, right? I mean, for, I mean literally, like, this world is still Satan's kingdom. And if we just get a job, live our lives, don't upset too many people, and have a little personal relationship with God that gets us through hard moments, that's what we're doing. We're behind enemy lines, moving in, getting comfortable. And you know what the enemy does there? They're like, well, that person is not a threat at all, so we're just let them stay over there until we want to take them out. And so I think for some of us, what we need to do is like in the middle, quote unquote, in the middle of the night, like bust out of our house and go get into the battle. <laughs> I think that's the invitation for some of us as well. Okay, let's talk about the unforgivable sin. This is a great way to close a message, but <laughs> I want to get to it. Um, okay, Matthew twelve thirty two, Jesus, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So this verse has been taken many different ways throughout history. And one thing I want to point out is that there are actually a lot of people who have a lot of fear and baggage around this verse. 
Like I've, I know a person who could not shake the feeling, no matter what anyone said to him, that he had committed the unforgivable sin at some point in his life. And no matter what he did, no matter how many times he confessed that Jesus was the Lord, that he was damned. And there was some demonic stuff that was attached to that. And maybe some of you in here have, have wrestled with that kind of fear that you think you maybe have at some point in your life committed the unforgivable sin and now you're sort of beyond redemption or beyond reconciliation. So that's kind of how this verse has been understood by some, is that there's this thing called the unforgivable sin, there's this thing called blaspheming the spirit, and if you do it, even if you do it accidentally, even if you do it without realizing it, you are, you're done for. No matter how much you try to come to God, he will never forgive you. And I can assure you that that is not the message that we ought to be taking from this. In fact, if we take that message from this, we are denying the rest of the gospel by using Matthew 12.32. Our interpretation of Matthew 12.32 is denying the rest of the gospel. So that's not how it ought to be taken. Let me start with a, with a scholar and a commentator on how to understand this verse. This is what Warren Carter says. <clears throat> to blaspheme against the spirit is to refuse to recognize God's eschatological or think the future good world that we were talking about, liberating work underway in Jesus. It consists not of doubt. Let's just say this together. Not of doubt. Not a misspoken word. Not an unknown or unwitting sin. Thank you. And now let me finish. But of a sustained of a sustained refusal to recognize that Jesus' works power by the Spirit, enact God's good goal for the future world. Van and I were talking about this a few days ago, and he was saying, if you're worried you committed the unforgivable sin, you didn't commit the unforgivable sin. <laughs> that, <laughs> that in and of itself is evidence that you have not committed it. I know the language here is confusing, but really the best way to understand this is that Jesus is not talking about a single moment here that's unforgivable, like a single action or a single word of speech, but a heart posture. That as long as we have a heart posture in place that, is, uh, that does not view Jesus as the son of God who has come to bring about God's good future for the world, as long as that's our heart posture, there can be no forgiveness. But if that's not, if that was your heart posture at some point in your life, and that's no longer your heart posture now, while you maybe were committing the quote-unquote unforgivable sin then, you're not committing it now, so you can be forgiven. And I know that the language of it seems to indicate that if you do it once, you can't be forgiven of it in the future, but that's just not how it's supposed to be taken. What Jesus is specifically pointing at here is the heart posture of the Pharisees. As long as you have the heart posture of the Pharisees, you cannot be forgiven. If you let go of the heart posture of the Pharisees, you can be. That's the point here. So in summary, when you live out the kingdom of God, when you cast out demons, heal the sick, do justice, forgive those that are unforgivable, love your enemies, serve, lay down your life. When you do the kingdom of God, 
You give evidence to all of the world that God's good world is breaking into ours, that God's good kingdom is already breaking into this broken world. Also, we are on the offensive. We're attacking Satan. He's, I mean, he does attack us, but it's only in the context of us attacking him. And offense is our best defense. So would you stand with me? A few prayer points for the morning. Prayer teams, you can come on forward. Get ready, get stationed. So for some of you, I think you feel totally ill-equipped to do the acts of the kingdom. You hear me talking about healing, casting out demons, forgiving, all that, and you're like, that all sounds great. I could never do any of that. If that's you, I believe that God is inviting you to come forward this morning, get prayer, and allow him to empower you, give you the confidence and the grace to, and the boldness to live out your Christian life, not just as someone who calls himself a Christian behind enemy lines, but someone who's actually on the attack, on the move. Secondly, I think some of you have felt under attack lately, and it's kind of led you to this more defensive posture in your relationship with God. And I think for you, uh, there's breakthrough and freedom, and I want to invite you to come forward and get prayer for that. And then finally, I think some of you have been scared that you've done something unforgivable before God, whether it's the unforgivable sin or it's just something that you've thought, there's no way God would ever forgive me for this. And I think God is inviting you up this morning to show you just how big his grace and his love really is. So Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that the kingdom of God has come to this place, to this planet, to this world, and that you for 1,990 years have been setting things right. You've been taking the brokenness of Satan's kingdom and turning it into life and goodness. And we eagerly await, Lord, the day that you come and do away with everything um, evil and sinful altogether. But until then, let us be in the fight. Let us be on the offensive. Let us be doing the works of the kingdom for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks for coming, everyone, to Vineyard Northwest. See you next week.